Looking at Animals in the Past, an interview with Erica Fudge about the role of animals in history. And we speak with Sharon Kirsch about her new book on human-animal relations in early Canadian history. I'm Sean Karaj, and you're listening to Episode 11 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. Environmental history is primarily concerned with the relationship between humans and non-human nature. But the study of non-human nature holds a different set of problems and poses a different set of questions when considering non-human animals. There are plenty of environmental histories with animals. Canadian environmental history seems especially interested in telling stories about those creatures we deem to be wildlife. Historians including Tina Liu, John Sandloss, George Colpitz, and many others have studied different aspects of wildlife history. As environmental historians continue to explore the place of animals in stories of the past, they increasingly cross into the rich literature and theory of historical animal studies. Harriet Ritvo's 2004 article, Animal Planet, in the journal Environmental History, laid out some of the ways in which these disciplines intersect and the possibilities for future research. This episode of the podcast looks at the place of animals in environmental history. For environmental historians looking to integrate their research with historical animal studies, Erica Fudge's 2006 essay, The History of Animals, on the H-Animal Discussion Network, is a great place to start. This essay poses some very interesting arguments about the role of animals in history and the potential for historical animal studies to change our understanding of agency. I recommend listeners follow the link to this essay on our show notes, but to find out more, we managed to reach Erica in London. I'm Erica Fudge. I teach uh, in English literature at Middlesex University, which is in North London in the United Kingdom. Erica, thanks for joining us. Um, you're the author of, of uh, several books on what we might call historical animal studies. Most recently, uh, you've published a book called Pets with Acumen Press uh, and a book called Brutal Reasoning, Animals, Rationality, and Humanity in Early Modern England published by Cornell University Press in 2006. Uh, but what I wanted to talk to you about was an essay that you published in 2006 uh, that uh, listeners can find on <clears throat> the H Animal Discussion Network called The History of Animals. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit further about the ideas that you flesh out in this essay. Um, but first of all, I want to know, uh, how can studying the history of animals change our understanding of the past? Well, I think there's a number of ways of answering that question. I think the first and most obvious one, which has implications for writing history generally, is I think more and more writing the history of animals is reminding us how far historical writing, the writing of the past, is limited by what we are interested in. So that I and I know colleagues who are also writing in the field of the history of animals are not digging out unsought-for no, unsought archives. We're actually looking in places that are very familiar and actually mm -hmm. just finding things that nobody's really looked at before. A good example of that might be, for example, I was looking at Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, which is a central text for early modern studies. At the beginning of that book, he says that his aim in writing The Anatomy of Melancholy is to show how a man differs from a dog. 
Now, it's there. It's written down in those simple terms. And I think nobody has ever, I've not come across anybody who's really thought about what he means. I think he's serious. And I think if you read The Anatomy of Melancholy, within the context of the significance of animals, you can see that what he's doing is showing that a human being is not the same as a dog. And so that, as an example, is just one of the things that animal studies is doing is allowing us to see things that we might not otherwise be looking at. So it reminds us how selective history is. Uh, and so, in a sense, you might say it denaturalizes history because we've taken it for granted uh, that certain mm -hmm. things are worth writing about and certain things are not worth writing about. So I think that's one way of thinking about that question. The other is um, to sort of tilt the question towards our understanding of the past and how it might impact on the present is to show us how far our attitudes towards animals the attitudes that we live with nowadays, I'd say we in Western Europe, in North American culture, mm -hmm. are structured through historical shifts. So, for example, in brutal reasoning, one of the things I was interested in was how come Descartes' views of animals as automatons comes to have such a big place in, if you like, history of ideas actually in the early modern period is not regarded as an important or particularly real significant contribution to discussions about real animals. Mm -hmm. And so our attitudes that have animal pain as being less than human pain and so on and so forth, animal cognitive abilities as being lesser, are coming out of a certain set of historical trajectories that we may not have realized are there. So do you see this kind of research as revisionist? I suppose in the very, very broadest sense of going back and retracing how ideas emerge in culture, it is. But I would also say you know, it could be extremely radical in that it is retrieving from the past things that have been discarded mm -hmm. or things that have been regarded as not having a huge significance. So Descartes has been given significance because I think of his place, right place in the history of philosophy. Right. I think what I'm interested in is how far one idea that only takes up a few pages in his complete works comes to be assumed to have a centrality in culture that has nothing to do with the reality of what that culture is saying about animals at the time. And so I think there's a disjunction between what people thought about animals and what people thought about philosophy that is lost. And it's come to be that what people think about philosophy is what people thought about animals. Part of the argument that you formulate in the essay... Uh, on the H Animal Discussion Network uh, gets at um, this idea of agency in the past. Uh, in, in what way does studying animals change a historian's understanding of agency or historical actors? Well, I think traditional history, um, as anyone who's writing history knows, began with agency as being at the top. So put it crudely, Napoleon was perceived in one kind of very conventional old form of history to have agency, whereas mm -hmm. the foot soldiers didn't. Mm -hmm. And of course, that has changed, particularly over the last second half of the 20th century with the work of people like E.P. Thompson and working class history, women's history, uh, histories of ethnicity, uh, uh, histories of ethnic minorities and so on. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's very interesting in them is, again, they remind us of how limited the scope of history is at any given historical moment. But I think what happens in those texts and in those kind of fields of historical inquiry is agency remains with humans. And so it might be that you begin to look at working class resistance rather than just assume 
that power is in the hands of the powerful. But actually, you are still thinking about humans as having a specific role in uh, the past. I think animal studies and the history of animals um, opens up some of those possibilities. The example I used in the essay on the H Animal uh, website is Virginia de Jong Anderson's fantastic book um, about an, uh, cows in early uh, New World, a uh, new, sorry, about cows in the early English uh, colonialization of the North uh, of North America. Mm -hmm. And she basically is arguing that if you trace the problems between the indigenous populations and the settler populations in their understanding of cattle and what it means to be a wild animal, what it means to be a possessed animal, mm -hmm. you can trace a whole history of the interactions of the diplomacies that needed to take place between the different peoples. And so for her, cattle become significant actors in history. Now, what's important is that she is not making the case that these cattle had any intention beyond feeding themselves. So for her, right. and I think this is the really interesting thing about agency, agency does not necessarily need to come with something like intention. I think this is a, an interesting development. So you can see an animal as having agency if it forces the world around it to shift because of its presence. So the cattle in uh, Virginia, in the Virginia colony, force things to change between the settling population and the indigenous population. Not because they wanted it to, but because they found they had to, because they brought these animals with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that opens up agency in all sorts of really interesting ways that might include animals. Does it even challenge our understanding of human agency? Well, I think it just makes human agency one form of agency rather than the only form of agency. I mean, you can then look at something like actor network theory in which the suggestion is that we are all actors in networks and the other actors in the networks can include animals. They can include items of clothing, books, the buildings we work within. And so actually actor network theory provides a network as the source of agency, but makes no necessary distinction between the different nature of the actors in those networks. And so I think it kind of challenges absolutely the distinction that we've assumed is there in the human being. Now, some people might argue it goes too far along those lines and so on, but I think just thinking about agency as being something that is potentially present in other than human beings in the world they could be buildings, they could be animals, is a really interesting set of possibilities. Now, I become uncomfortable when an animal has the same status as a building, because clearly <laughs> right. they are different. Right. But that is not necessarily the only thing that you can do with this kind of set of a circumstance. I think we've become very specific, I suppose. You think about this particular cow or this particular problem established by these cattle in this situation gives them a set of, you know, you have to assume that they are moving the world around them. They are making things happen. Mm -hmm. And that, in a sense, has to be called agency. And I think that's a really interesting and productive way of thinking about how animals might fit into history, that they're not just objects of human use, although, of course, they are that, nor are they just metaphors that people think through, although, of course, they are that. Mm -hmm. They might also have uh, motivating presences in the world that they're living in. So I guess my next question is, uh, a methodological question then. Um, how can historians write about animals as actors in the past when the documents that we traditionally use are mainly produced by humans and thus mediated through a human perspective? What 
kind of strategies can a historian use to read historical documents in order to understand the uh, animal actors? Now that is a very, very real problem, of course. I think in the first instance, I think, you know, it could just be we accept that and it becomes a brick wall that we cannot get across. And I think, you know, I'm not willing to do that. So I am willing to say, I mean, I'm not dealing as a historian with things like archaeological evidence, the bone fragments Mm -hmm. from which we might be able to tell histories of the animals as they are living within human culture. So you might be able to take, you know, see what food they're eating from skeletal remains and so on. I'm not dealing with that. I'm dealing mainly with written documentation, but I would also say, even if you're tracing histories through something like the changing shape of a plough, mm-hmm. that you are looking at how horses were being asked to pull things differently, how muscles were being treated differently, and so on, that is still a human document. It's still constructed by a human for use by a cow, or by a horse, by an ox, whatever. So there is a real problem. And I've written an essay a few years back in which, you know, one of the ways I thought we could get around that or think through that is to say, well, isn't the history of animals, one of its roles is to challenge what it is that a human being is in the world. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one way of addressing that real problem that we are only ever dealing with human documents when we're writing about animals. I think that's not enough, though. I've become less and less satisfied to say that. So I am trying to think well what can i do given that the documents that i read are by humans they're always kind of the animals are always an object of analysis rather than the writing presence in the text and i think you know there are all sorts of ways that potentially are coming out of my disciplinary kind of professional position which is as a literary scholar Mm -hmm. and so things like thinking about what the text cannot say Uh, about the animals, where human language fails, where it breaks down. So I became very interested in a description of a a water spaniel hunting. Is it a water spaniel? Mm -hmm. A a hunting dog um, being described in the late 16th century text as um, moving like a worm to get close to its prey. Now, the question I had there was, you know, what does this mean? Is it simply the like a worm, a metaphor, a simile even, that the author is using because he can't think of any other way of describing what this dog's movements look like? Or are we to assume that somehow or other this dog, in its act of hunting, is attempting to be a different being in the world than it is when it's being a dog next to its master and so on? And so like a worm is a description of something that the dog is attempting to do. Now, these are pure speculative questions but i hope in speculating about things like that we might open up possibilities that would not be available if we just said oh it's just a simile you know can i say that this dog in the late 16th century who's being described by this author is not when hunting attempting to be a different kind of creature to the one it's being when it's sitting by its master's fire mm-hmm. i can't give you an answer to that about the dogs nowadays so it's impossible, even more impossible, to think about the dogs in the 16th and 17th century. So I think how people are writing about these animals might be one. So a close, detailed reading of the descriptions is a potential way of dealing with that. I think that in turn opens up the question of whose perspective we are looking at, whose position we're taking when we're looking at these animals and to just speculate about what it might mean to be a cow what it might mean to be a dog Mm -hmm. is a very interesting 
problematic question that I think, you know, historians need to ask as much as literary scholars, as much as creative writers. Mm -hmm. It might not get as far. We may not come up with answers as such, but it might allow us to read the sources we do have in more nuanced ways Mm -hmm. or to remind ourselves what the sources don't tell us. And I imagine this is only more complicated by the axis of time. What does it mean to be a cow in the 19th century? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, because I think, you know, this is a a really significant problem, or in problem, I say problem, it's a problem for me, it's not a problem for the cattle, <laughs> is that the animals we can look at nowadays are not necessarily the same as the animals that were being looked at in the 16th century. Right. Or the 19th century, or, you know, whatever historical period of the past you're interested in. And so that in itself raises new and interesting questions. I mean, I do think more and more that the history of animals is a really, really interesting historiographic study because it raises questions about writing history that don't necessarily have to be asked in the same way if you're writing other kinds of history. Now, I know those other kinds of history are also asking their own serious historiographical questions, mm-hmm. but I think the animal studies questions are very particular and very interesting ones. Uh, so that brings me to my next question, then. What, what future directions do you envision for historical animal studies? Well, I think on a practical level, there are going to be materials out there that have not yet been fully assessed and I think that can range from simply looking at for example in England the the records of the RSPCA over the 20th century I know people like Hilda Keane and Jonathan Burt have already used those records in their own research but I think I'm sure there's plenty of research more to be done on the available data that people just haven't looked at in archives yet so I think There will be an increase in the availability of archival evidence. I'm sure the Internet will become a part of that. So Mm -hmm. um, one of the futures of the history of animal studies or historical animal studies is going to be an increase in the available evidence we have, uh, which will be very, very interesting. It will certainly impact, for example, on what we might be able to write about, what More information may mean more stories to tell. It may, of course, not. We don't know that yet. Um, I have a feeling that a growing awareness of the centrality of animals to human history can only make human history more interesting. So I think there might be an increased integration of animal studies to mainstream history, because I think at the moment environmental history obviously has a link to animal studies and animal history, um, and that's... uh, a a collaboration that I think needs to be developed and will continue to be developed. But I think to a certain extent, animal studies is still on the peripheries of mainstream history. And just as the the history of women, the history of ethnic minorities and so on was seen as a kind of slightly separate, distinct aspect of historical studies Mm -hmm. that has now become part of the mainstream. I think that's going to happen with animal studies and I think that's going to be very interesting Um, I also think there needs to be links and useful links made to areas in other disciplines and the place I'm thinking about for my own work at the moment most uh, significantly is sensory studies Mm. uh, which is coming out of anthropology Um, because a lot of those writers are raising some of the questions we've talked about 
how do you record smell? How do you write a history of something so transient as noise? Mm -hmm. Um, And so on and so forth. And so there are all sorts of connections being made just in the kind of theoretical, methodological problems raised by sensory studies. But I also think sensory studies, very obviously, is also um, going to be very interesting for animal studies because animals, as we know, don't have language in the way that human beings have. They can't record uh, their thoughts in documents in the way that human beings from the past have done. Mm -hmm. But they are living in sensory landscapes. And again, it's like another reminder that the human perspective is not the only perspective. What would it smell like to be a dog when your sense of smell is so exponentially strong compared to a human sense of smell? Um, what is that world like? Now, to a certain extent, of course, we cannot recreate that, nor you know, just because of what it would smell like. Would I particularly mm-hmm. want to try to recreate it? But I think it, again, raises interesting questions about human limitation and how that feeds into the disciplines like history and how we might slightly come at a different angle to think about things that might open up new ways of thinking that will not give us fixed answers. I don't think anyone's going to ever write an empirical history of the smell that a dog smelt in London in the 17th century. But I think to have an awareness that a dog in the 17th century was engaging with a world that is completely different from our own must make history more deep, must make it more rich. And that has to be a good thing. So I suppose for me, the history is to make more data available, which will make more stories able to be told, I think, potentially to become more collaborative with other areas, um, sensory studies, but also potentially to become more mainstream, to actually not set up, and I don't think we ever have really set up in distinction from this thing called human history, but to argue that human history is animal history. Mm-hmm. with a focus on one species rather than the others. The possibilities seem uh, quite exciting at this stage uh, that animal historical animal studies is at. Um, Erica, I want to uh, thank you for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time to tell us a little bit more about animals in history. That's great. I'm pleased to have been asked. Thank you very much. The study of human-animal relations holds great potential for historical scholarship and offers Canadian historians a different way of seeing the past. Sharon Kirsch's new book, What Species of Creatures? Animal Relations from the New World, published by New Star Books, does just this. The book examines episodes of early Canadian history and the colonization of North America from a different perspective by considering the sometimes contradictory relations between European colonizers and the indigenous fauna of the New World. Okay, my name is Sharon Kirsch, and I am the author of What Species of Creatures? Animal Relations from the New World, which is a work of creative nonfiction. Well, Sharon, thanks for joining us uh, on the podcast today. I'm glad we had a chance to get you on the phone here uh, to uh, tell us a little bit more about your book. I thought we might start off by by letting listeners know uh, what brought you to this topic of studying human-animal relations in early Canadian history. Well, the present was really my starting point, Sean. Uh, I am interested in wild animals, and I do feel that wild animals, if not hunted or exterminated because they threaten human activity, are often taken for granted. We do often seem to feel they're expendable and that they or their habitats that sustain them are regularly sacrificed to achieve human ends. 
So I decided to look backwards uh, to see where some of these attitudes originated. And of course, there we have history, which provides an alternative point of view and freshness of perception, we hope. Mm -hmm. And I chose early Canadian history because I was especially interested in first encounters of French and British with unfamiliar species. So the uh, verbal accounts I found are the stories or animal relations in the title of my book. Uh, And that, of course, recalls the Jesuit relations. Mm-hmm. But in this case, we are using the term for animals, and relations, of course, operates in, in both senses of the word, both as kin and as accounts of animals. If you like, I can read you a couple of very brief snippets uh, of animal writing from 18th century Hudson's Bay employees, just to give a sense of what sort of language we find here. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, the first is by Andrew Graham, as I say, an 18th century employee of the Hudson's Bay Company, and this is about the animal he called the hedgehog, which we know as the porcupine. And he writes very briefly that it had quills about the size of a coarse knitting needle. So I find those sorts of analogies quite delightful. The second uh, sample I've selected is the musk ox, And this is by James Isham, who was uh, an 18th century Hudson's Bay employee as well, and also the primary subject of my final chapter in the book, ABC of Animals. Here of the musk ox, he says, they have thin, long black hair and furred like unto a black bear with a tail of about five inches long and of the size, shape, and make of a Welsh heifer. So there, of course, he's using an old world analogy to describe an animal he's never before encountered. I tended to focus on the earlier uh, periods of writing in the European arrival, particularly 17th and 18th century, and tended to stop for the most part around the mid-19th century because the language seemed to me after that to have less freshness, and of course the animals had become Mm. more familiar. Right. So this is interesting. The language that's being used in these sources uh, relies on analogies to old world animals or old world imagery? Yes, not all of the time, but of Mm -hmm. course uh, the Europeans were searching for ways they could describe these animals to audiences who weren't familiar with them, and of course they didn't have photography or any of the technology we now enjoy. Uh, So Mm -hmm. analogy was one way they were able to convey some sense of an animal uh, to an audience with no previous experience of it. So this is a, that's a good illustration of some of the more fascinating sources that you're able to tease out in the book. And one of the most interesting parts of the book uh, comes out right in the first chapter in which you explore um, the companionate relations between old world peoples and wild new world animals. Can you tell us a little bit more about this research and tell us about uh, Samuel Hearn's pet beaver? Absolutely. Well, in my reading, I began to come across descriptions of companionships between humans and animals that we now think of as wild or untamable. And to give some examples, there were otters, lemmings, or hair-tailed mice, as they called them, eagles, muskrats, flying squirrels, and even black and polar bears. Mm -hmm. And you come across extraordinary images like priests sleeping with muskrats (laughs) or explorers sheltering flying squirrels in their muffs. And I'll I'll tell you a little bit about the the nature of these relationships and what distinguishes them uh, from other kinds of relationships with animals that are more familiar or were in the past. So 
one of the, the essential traits to me is how freeform these relationships were and sometimes fleeting. The animals were not forcibly confined and could mostly move freely between indoors and outdoors. They were accommodated. They were often fed, although they might, of course, have provided some of their own food when they were roaming outside. Uh, but for instance, we're talking as well when we say accommodation about habitation or mm-hmm. architectural structures. Structures, For instance, the artist George Caitlin, uh, this is in the 19th century, made a perch for his pet eagle. And he tells us the eagle was not fixed or confined in any way. Uh, Alexander Henry the Younger, a fur trader with the Northwest Company, tried to dig a hibernation hole for his bear and found that his bear, in fact, preferred to make his own shelter for the winter. But but these seem to me really quite extraordinary gestures on behalf of animals and with no gain on the human side. Uh, Another uh, feature is that the animals were taken young so as to adapt to human company. And I guess none of us would find that especially surprising. We all know that the young are more malleable than the old. And uh, for the most part, they were not named. So that's something that distinguishes them from the pets we now have. Although, as I will mention when I get on to Samuel Hearn's pet beaver or beavers, he did apparently have names for them. Mm. But essentially, these relationships could be quite ephemeral. The animals might disappear or die through some mishap, and occasionally uh, the sources even tell us quite matter-of-factly that they would eat a pet animal once it was dead, uh, and certainly that's not how we tend to treat our dogs and cats today. Right. So, so that's quite interesting. I could also, if you like, talk about uh, some things uh, that distinguish this type of animal relationship from the menagerie, which was uh, ongoing over the same period in Europe. But I don't know if you want me to take that avenue. Well, sure. Why don't we talk about that a little bit? Because these seem to be unique human-animal companion relations that we may not have um, analogies in present-day human-animal relations. Uh, well, I, it's possible in some you know, so-called primitive cultures, and I put that between quotation marks, right. we might find some parallels where people are still living in closer proximity to animals and in an environment that is closer to the natural one, mm-hmm. uh, unaltered by human habitation. So it's difficult to say, but certainly in the West, I think it would be safe to say uh, this type of relationship with animals is, is not common now. Uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries, there were menageries in Europe, right. and animals there were usually confined in cages or enclosures. They were very often exotic animals. In fact, some of them were imported from North America, so people might have an animal like a moose roaming uh, a pastoral uh, garden in England, for instance, mm-hmm. in some sort of enclosure. Mm-hmm. So the animals were usually outside of their natural habitat, and of course that is a major difference uh, with the kind of scenario I'm describing. In the second half of the 18th century, uh, the, the kinds of uh, British and French who had menageries did actually have some native animals they interacted with somewhat differently. For instance, they sometimes had rabbits roaming grounds freely and would feed those by hand. Mm-hmm. So that was a slightly different relationship, but the animals were not wild in the way uh, that these are. They were, of course, not domestic animals kept for human purposes, but nor were they potentially fierce animals. Um, in, In the menagerie, animals were also often commodities that conferred status. And that, again, I think is a major difference with the kind of relationships I'm describing in Canada. 
so in the 17th and early 18th century as well, there were royal menageries which emphasized rapacious beasts, animals of prey, and presumably there were some parallels between the power of the monarch or the aristocrat and these fierce beasts that devoured others. That brings us to class, and of course, only the wealthy, or at least the affluent, could afford menageries. It was very expensive both to import the animals in the menageries and to maintain them right. with the appropriate kinds of foods. And finally, I'll just add that, that in menageries, usually the animals were, as I mentioned earlier, kept in a garden setting in an enclosure and rarely ventured into the owner's homes, whereas some of the animal relations I've described involve animals actually living inside people's houses. So uh, those are the parallels I wanted to draw. Would you like me now to talk about Samuel Hearn's beavers? Yeah, this is a really interesting part here. I uh, want to help listeners understand this a little bit more. Samuel mm -hmm. Hearn is a man who's clearly associated with the frontiers of the fur trade in Canadian history. And, you know, uh, one of these names of fur trade history associated with the mass slaughter of beavers, and yet your sources show that he had a different mm -hmm. relationship to these animals that we don't often hear about. Absolutely. Well, Samuel Hearn was an amateur naturalist, among other things, and uh, we know that his observations were generally quite reliable. That's not true of all of the sources I've used in the book. Some have more fanciful perceptions of animals, but Samuel Hearn is fairly accurate, and so I think we can uh, take his word when he tells us about his pet beavers. He had several beavers, he tells us, and this, I should add, uh, comes from his book, A Journey from Prince of Wales's Fort in Hudson's Bay to the Northern Ocean. Right, and, and many uh, Canadian historians yeah. will be familiar with that text. Absolutely, yes, and it covers the years 1769, 70, 71, and 72, as many of your listeners will already know. Uh, so Samuel Hearn tells us that he had custom-made houses for his beavers, or a custom-made house, with, quote, a small piece of water before the door, and that was for them to relieve themselves. Now, this was an outdoor house. In cold weather, he tells us, the beavers came into the house and were supplied with a large tub of water for the same purpose as the outdoor piece of water. In the house, apparently, Hearn had not only beavers, but also various uh, Indian companions, Indian women and children, he describes. And the beavers were especially fond of the Indians. In Hearn's words, they were fondling on them, crawling into their laps, and behaving to them like children who see their parents but seldom. Mm. In winter, the beavers ate rice and plum pudding, as well as partridges and venison. Uh, and Hearn was well aware of beaver food in the wild, so he made a deliberate uh, choice to feed the beavers uh, these alternative foods, which they apparently accepted and prospered on. Finally, he tells us that the beavers answered to their names, although sadly we don't know their names, and <laughs> followed him about like dogs. So that is really quite an extraordinary and touching account of uh, relationships with animals that, that we would think of as wild and certainly outside of our own experience. Right, and it, it seems to almost even document animal behavior, historical animal behavior that we might not even see today anymore. Absolutely, yes. And uh, Hearn provides us with uh, an enormous amount of material about uh, other animals as well, some of which I detail in the first chapter of the book, Homo sapiens is wild at heart. And uh, as I say, he was an accurate reporter uh, and also gifted with words. So it's a delight to read him. And I certainly encourage anybody who's interested in the topic to explore further. 
Well, now, in the book, you do focus on some specific animals. There are two chapters devoted, one to uh, the hummingbird and another to the fox. Um, I thought maybe you could explain why you chose to highlight these two animals in particular. Absolutely. Well, there's a wealth of material about both, so that is the practical answer to your of question. Course. However, both animals are legendary and imbued with symbolism. The fox, as we know, is an animal that appears frequently in Aesop's fables. The hummingbird, uh, as many of your listeners will also know, is an animal that features in native mythology. And my book actually began with an interest in moral or human traits attributed to animals. So, for instance, the hummingbird is an animal associated with purity and the spirit, the fox often with cunning. These were actually the first two chapters I wrote, uh, the hummingbird first and then the fox. And at the time, I thought perhaps the entire book would be a sequence of chapters about individual animals. But mm -hmm. as you know, it developed differently later on. Uh, of the hummingbird, people wrote an enormous amount. They had interesting names for it. They called it the flybird because of its minuscule size, the oiseau mouche, which is the rough translation in French. Right. And uh, I can read you a tiny uh, snippet from uh, Gabriel Sagar, a recollet, uh, just to give a sense of how wondrous they found this bird. Uh, he says, the beak is very long and slender, as thick as the point of a needle, and its legs and feet are as small as the lines in handwriting. That's one of my favorite descriptions of the bird in Chapter 2. So that was a bird that was admired and really had no utilitarian purpose. There was little intent to harm it. It was trapped and sadly shot with grains of sand mm -hmm. uh, to make specimens. The only purpose it had for the Europeans dead was as a specimen to be sent back to Europe for others to admire. The red fox is a good contrast with the hummingbird because it was a widely distributed animal and still is. It was known in Europe at the time where it was hunted, and it was respected for its intelligence but reviled as a chicken thief and marauder. And uh, I have a little quote here from my fox chapter by Pierre-Xavier de Charlevoix, uh, the explorer and scientist. Again, somebody many of your listeners will know, and this is from the 18th century. I should add the... Uh, Gabrielle Cigar quote was from the 17th century. And here is what Charlevoix had to say about the foxes. He says, the foxes hunt the waterfowl after a very ingenious manner. They advance a little into the water and afterwards retire, playing a thousand antic tricks on the bank. The foolish creatures, meaning the waterfowl, are such dupes to his craftiness as to come and peck at his tail. The fox immediately springs upon them and seldom misses his aim. So the fox, unlike the hummingbird, was crafty and therefore a persecuted animal. He was hunted mm -hmm. for his fur, chased for sport, and later farmed for fur. And uh, much of the fox material I've included is actually from the 19th century, so that chapter covers the latest period in the book, whereas much of the hummingbird chapter comes from the 17th century and the Jesuit and Recollet chroniclers. Now, in the book, you, you use a lot of excellent textual sources, but it's also mm -hmm. supported by this series of graphical sources in these beautifully yes. composed images of hand-drawn sketches of New World animals. Uh, where do these images come from, and, and how do these sources connect with this broader topic of human-animal relations in this book? Well, all of the visual sources I've used are by individuals who visited the New World and observed the living animals firsthand. And this differentiates them from much animal art of the period, which was actually based on dead specimens. Mm 
Apart from a few illustrations by Elizabeth Simcoe, and I guess many of your listeners will be familiar with Elizabeth Simcoe, right. who was the wife of John Graves Simcoe, the Lieutenant Governor of Upper Canada. Uh, but apart from Elizabeth Simcoe, who was a gentlewoman and an amateur artist with some training, the other artists are essentially untutored and have produced quite raw if not unskilled images. And the rawness of the images is really a counterpart to the verbal representations of animals in the book because much of the writing about animals is eccentric and not by people who are professional authors, but people who happen to be in the new world for one purpose or another as missionaries or explorers and recorded their observations. Mm-hmm. So there are four artists in the book. I don't know if you would like me to run through them quickly. Sure, why not? Or one of them. I'll, I'll begin with Louis Nicolas, who, whose images are the most used in the book, and you can then tell me whether you'd like me to carry on. Uh, Louis Nicolas was a 17th century Jesuit missionary stationed in New France and the author and illustrator of the Codex Canadiensis, which is representations of Aboriginal life and animals, mostly in brown pen drawings. And the majority of the images in the book, as I said, are his, uh, including the cover image of deer and caribou. Other animals he depicts in the book are squirrels and chipmunks, black and white bears, the hummingbird, and his is the only image of the hummingbird I was able to find uh, that was appropriate for the book, skunk, muskrat, ermine, and even walrus. Uh, One interesting aspect of his drawings is he usually depicts the animals in groups, and that is, in one sense, aesthetic. I think you'd agree they're quite striking images, Uh, Mm -hmm. but it's also a form of classification in many ways, and so that, that is a counterpart, again, to the verbal material in the book. So for instance, he arranges all squirrel-like animals on one page, on another page he has weasel-like animals, which might include an animal like a a skunk, for instance, as well as say the ermine. He depicts the fox and the wolf together on one page and then has a page of snakes and so on and so forth. And uh, all of the figures, as I say, all of the the artists did feature in the book, in the narrative, to a lesser or greater extent. In the case of Louis Nicolas, I have only one anecdote about his own animal keeping, and he does tell us how he kept tame bears, uh, which I've described in the first chapter. Unfortunately, his idea of taming the bears uh, was not particularly uh, palatable to the modern ear. He he actually knocked out their teeth and used mm-hmm. quite a bit of source, uh, force to subdue them. Well, why don't we talk about um, the writing style of this book? Readers are going to sure. immediately notice uh, the unique writing style of what species of creatures. Your book is written in in very rich prose and in a fashion that you refer to as creative nonfiction. So can you explain uh, some of the influences on this writing style and what inspired this creative approach to uh, your historical writing? Yes, certainly. I found the language in the historical sources quite compelling, as I mentioned when we first began our conversation, and I wanted to respond to it in a way that was not purely intellectual. So I evolved my own style that really marries historical language with contemporary 21st century idiom and even binomials of contemporary scientific classification, uh, which produces, I think, a fairly unique result. I was fascinated by the vocabulary they had in the early period for naming animals. I can give you some examples because I think these are just so quaint. A chipmunk, for example, they called a Suisse because the stripe resembled the uniform of the Swiss guard. The porcupine, as I alluded to earlier, was called a hedgehog, but also an urchin and even a bristly beaver. 
a skunk was a skulk, a devil's brat, a stinking beast, and a striped polecat. And again, here with polecat, we have a reference to an old world animal. Right. And for the walrus, the sea cow, seahorse, and sea elephant were various names assigned to it. So first of all, then, I'll begin by just uh, describing for your listeners how in these early models of writing about animals, we find many catalogs or lists. This was true among many of the employees of the Hudson's Bay Company, that they would document the animals they encountered, and they would mingle observation with personal anecdote, as we saw in the quote from Samuel Hearn. Mm -hmm. These are the models I used as an inspiration for the final chapter in ABC of Animals, and in it, I create a catalog of animals that includes historical writings, as well as my own entries for man or homo sapiens. The animals I cover in that chapter are the beaver, the wolverine, ermine, hedgehog or porcupine, the musk buffalo or musk ox, the musquash or muskrat, skulk or skunk, and sea cow or walrus. And I certainly was influenced by Samuel Hearn and his writings. Uh, he, he does talk about animals throughout his book, but he also has a chapter right at the end which describes plants and animals in great detail. And his method of describing them begins with the quadrupeds, or the four-footed animals. He then divides those up into animals with canine teeth, like foxes, white bear, and wolverine, animals with cutting teeth, the musk beaver, or muskrat, porcupine, and castor beaver, what we now call the beaver, pinnated mm -hmm. quadrupeds with fin-like feet, like the walrus, seal, and so on. So that was one influence. There was then James Isham's own work, uh, Observations on Hudson's Bay, 1743. James Isham spent much of his career with the Hudson's Bay Company at York Factory. And unlike uh, Hearn, he was less somebody who interacted overtly with animals or cohabited with them than somebody who collected specimens of animals and made observations of them, or at least this is what we understand from the writings he's left behind. Right. So one, one of the interesting things he left us, and again, this was an influence on that chapter, was his vocabulary. A vocabulary was English words with translations, in this case, from mixed Cree dialects, and it was for the use of the fur traders during this period. So here he has things like a list of beasts and things relating to beasts, and he will actually divide some of the animals up into extraordinary categories. Instead of just a beaver, we have a he-beaver, a she-beaver, a whole or old beaver. Uh, he talks about insects and so on and so forth. And so the, the chapter takes a form inspired by the, both the vocabulary and the sorts of classifications Samuel, Samuel Hearn evolved, and uh, I think you would agree it's fairly unusual. So this leads to uh, a style of writing that's that's really rich and something I, that I think can appeal to both uh, an academic audience as well as a, uh, a more casual audience of readers. I hope so. I, th I think there's a lot of humor in the uh, historical quotations. I hope a little bit of that came out in the selections I've been reading to you, but the book has certainly a playful uh, tone, and uh, it, it is both an elegy and a black comedy, I think. Now, we don't often see books in Canadian history that attempt to uh, capture the history of non-human animals, uh, and I think part of this is due to the challenge of, of the kind of sources that you can use to, mm -hmm. to understand historical animals, and your research for this book, you rely on a number of these well-known primary source texts to draw yes. out this history. Uh, what were some of the challenges you encountered in this kind of approach to studying 
animals in the past? Well, to the best of my knowledge, no one has written a comprehensive history of animals in Canada based Mm -hmm. on verbal sources. Uh, There's a book by Victoria Dickinson, which perhaps some of your listeners will know, drawn from life, science, and art in the portrayal of the new world, Mm -hmm. that does analyze animal representation in the visual arts, and that was a help to me. And since the principal human personalities in the book are British and French, I was able to draw on works about European natural history. So, for instance, there's a book called Elephant Slaves and Pampered Parrots, Exotic Animals in 18th Century Paris by Louise E. Robbins was quite useful. Harriet Ritfo's The Platypus and the Mermaid about methods of classification was most useful. But ultimately, as you know uh, from the nature of the book, my purpose was not to write a purely academic treatise about animals, but rather to combine research with a creative approach. So I wasn't striving to be comprehensive, but rather was guided by interest and by the aesthetic properties of the writing. As the Beaver Review of the book said, it's as much about individual experience as generalities, and anecdote is very important throughout. Uh, The final two chapters about Elizabeth Simcoe and James Isham are really almost unconventional biographies that trace the evolution of humans through their interactions with the natural world. Mm-hmm. I was also not concerned to the extent a lot of uh, pure scholars might be about the strict correctness of the observations I read. As I mentioned earlier, some of the writing about animals was quite fanciful and even, you could say, addled <laughs> at <laughs> times. Um, but that was not of a special concern for me. However, I did need to make sure that uh, I was not misinterpreting the material and uh, to do that, in addition to trying to read fairly broadly uh, in background material, I also had several expert readers go through the text for me. So the book is is clearly restricted to uh, colonial history of Canada, by and large. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you stated at the outset here, you had a contemporary interest uh, when you started to work on this project. So what are the connections do you see uh, between uh, present-day Canada and the status of animals today to what you studied in these historical sources? In Chapter 1, I describe the scala naturae, or chain of being, you may recall, which explains a hierarchy of animals with man at the pinnacle or close to it, God and the angels rank above him, and the other animals falling below, and often their place in the chain is determined by their proximity or likeness to man. And I actually should apologize to listeners for using men, but I'm speaking in period terms, so I have to use that phrase rather than human beings, which is a bit more prosaic. Uh, Unfortunately, in some respects, I don't think we have escaped from this hierarchy today. Uh, Animals' point of view is very rarely represented, I find, in the mainstream media. Uh, For instance, I recently read an account of uh, a grizzly bear who threatened a hunter, and even though the hunter's purpose was to kill the bear, there was a great sense of outrage when the hunter himself ended up being the wounded one. Uh, And I'm I'm not uh, describing this because I have no compassion for the wounded hunter. I should just make that clear. But I was interested in the way this story was reported. Uh, There was also a dispassionate, dispassionate mention of three cubs looking on, Uh, And we all know that if uh, the bear herself, the mother bear, is wounded as she was and doesn't survive, the three cubs perhaps would not survive as well. And yet there was no reflection on that in the story uh, and no mention either of the grizzly bear as an increasingly threatened species. 
Mm-hmm. So I think that's fairly typical of uh, what we find in the mainstream press. Obviously, there are exceptions. It's also interesting that animals in the past, of course, were less threatened by habitat destruction and extermination because, of course, human population and activity was much less of a factor. But I find it quite uh, surprising to hear that overhunting did occur, and perhaps many of your listeners will be familiar with this. And mm. some of the fur-bearing animals, like the beaver, did become scarce in certain parts of North America during the earlier period. I have a little quote here I wanted to share with your listeners, uh, really, which reflects somebody with an early conservation of sensibility. This is from John McTaggart, who was a surveyor of the Rideau Canal route and an amateur naturalist. He was a Scot who was posted over in Canada for a few years. And uh, the book he wrote, Three Years in Canada, was published in 1829. And he was at the time concerned. He says, the fur animals are becoming absolutely scarce, notwithstanding the enormous space they have to breed on. And it is a truth of natural history that the more a race of animals is pursued by the avarice of man, the more the beasts themselves seem to assist in their own extirpation. If the fox and the wolf were to howl out the night without meeting with comrades, they begin to lose their appetite and indeed would require Abernethy's blue pill to set the digestive organs in order. And the blue pill, we assume, is something for those who are ailing. But uh, clearly here we have somebody who is concerned about the disappearance of the fur-bearing animals. Mm -hmm. And he goes on, actually, at a later point in his text to criticize the employees of the Hudson's Bay Company and refers to them as employees much like those in any corporation who are simply interested in profit and have no concern for the animals themselves. The book is What Species of Creatures? Animal Relations from the New World. I think this is uh, going to be a very rewarding read for uh, listeners who pick up a copy and, and have a read through what Sharon has, uh, has written. Sharon, I want to thank you for uh, speaking with us today and uh, telling us a little bit more about your research and, uh, and your book. Thank you very much, Sean. It's been my pleasure. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Erica Fudge, Sharon Kirsch, and me, Sean Karash. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at niche-canada.org slash nature's past, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave us some comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate this podcast and write a short review on our iTunes page. If you have ideas for new episodes or you want to send me some feedback, contact me through my website at seancourage.wordpress.com. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. And you can follow Niche on Twitter at twitter.com slash niche underscore Canada. You can also follow Nature's Past on Twitter at twitter.com slash nature's past. Thanks for listening, and be sure to download our next episode when we return from the winter break in January.